0: It's my very great privilege to uh, continue with the series that we started last week, looking at the Lord's Prayer. Last week, we only looked at two words, our Father, and this week, we're going to only look at two words, in heaven, our Father in heaven. There is such a wonderful, weighty balance in these four words. They form the opening sentence of a Lord's Prayer that, as we said last week, is so familiar to us. Let me try and set it up for us like this. First of all, a little recap. Our Father speaks of revolutionary intimacy. Last week, we were thinking about God being our Father, and we saw that this was a radical concept that Jesus introduced. And it wasn't, it wasn't so much the idea that the concept of God being a father was completely unknown. Someone else, not me, counted that there are 14 references to God being referred to as father in the Old Testament. 14 references. However, all of those references in the Old Testament talk in more general terms, about God being a father to the nation of Israel. There isn't a single example of any person, any individual in the Old Testament, coming to God, approaching God, and calling him father. So when we come to Jesus, we should prick up our ears. In the Gospels alone, there are over 60 references To God being Father. And virtually, every single time we hear Jesus addressing God, he uses the words, my Father. But we also saw, it's not just the numbers. We also saw that the word that Jesus used to address his Father was a particularly intimate one. It was as if Jesus was calling God his dad. No one in history had ever spoken to God in such an intimate way. Revolutionary intimacy, our Father. But then Jesus astonishingly invites his friends into the same kind of revolution when he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. In his classic book, you might be aware of it, Knowing God, James Packer suggests that actually authentic Christian spirituality is summed up best as knowing God as our Father. Here's Packer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And listen to this. Father, father is the Christian name for God. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Father is the Christian name for God. And it implies, doesn't it, that we are known by him, we belong to him, we experience his love and security and forgiveness from the lips of Jesus. This is a life-changing and history-shaping concept. Our Father. But secondly... Matthew adds a twist to the idea of God's fatherhood. It's pretty unique to Matthew, this actually. It seems to be a particular favourite phrase of Matthew in his Gospel, and it appears over 20 times. Matthew seems to really enjoy reminding his readers that God is our Father in heaven. And this is such a stunning combination, isn't it, of intimacy and glory. God is near to us in his compassionate fatherliness. And yet, at the same time, somehow, he is so completely above and beyond us in his glory. The reason Matthew loves this is because Jesus himself described God this way. And here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven. I think in these four words, Jesus touches on some of our deepest human longings. We long to be both safe, and I, and I want to say, yet wowed. We, we, To be loved and secure and to belong is one thing. But to be captivated and stirred and deeply satisfied is another, isn't it? The phrase, our Father in heaven, immediately confronts us, doesn't it? With our need for love and our need for wonder. We're made for this. And I think these simple words, they contain keys to unlock for us great treasure so let's keep that balance weighty significant balance in mind intimacy and glory as this afternoon we try and unpack the two words in heaven um i have four ideas to explore with you just so you can pace yourself for four, four. Four ideas with three subpoints under each one. No, I'm I'm only kidding. That's cheating as well, isn't it? Four ideas to explore with you. The first one is this, very simply. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer that begins with worship. And I think it's really easy for us to miss this because it's so familiar. But Jesus is saying, and mark this, Jesus is saying when you pray you must always start with God and not you. It's really easy to skip over that. When you pray, don't start with you. Jesus says we must always start with God. I think sometimes if your prayers are like mine, they can sound like a kind of shopping list of the things we want God to do or the things we want God to be or the things we want God to give us. But Jesus says here, as he teaches this prayer, slow down. Slow down. I was reminded this week of the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job had a, a fairly terrible time, if you know the story. A fairly terrible time of tragic loss and trauma. And his understandable instinct, I think, was to come to God, if we can say it reverently, to come to God almost wanting to shake God. After a week of sitting in silence, Job begins to pray and he starts with himself. I wish I'd never been born. That's where he starts. He doesn't start with God, he starts with himself. Why has this happened? And what are you going to do about it? How are you going to sort this out, God? You've got to do something. Job's friends, as you might know, were no help to him at all. But gradually, through his tears and confusion, and in spite of the very bad advice of his friends, Job begins to hear God speak. And eventually, God begins to ask Job... All kinds of questions. I made a note of some of them here. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Who shut up the sea behind its doors? Job, do you know where the light and the darkness live? And what their addresses? Can you tie a rope around trillions of stars? This goes on for three chapters. Imagine God asking you questions like this. Three chapters of questions. It is deep and it's mysterious. But at the very least, I think what God is doing is giving Job a glimpse of what in heaven means. God is showing Job that Job is not God. And that actually, without insulting or crushing Job, God is showing him that he has no clue, really. He can't even begin to fathom or measure or contain God's glory and complexity and greatness. And as this conversation develops, it seems to me that the noise in Job's heart gradually quietens down and he starts to worship God and we might even say surrender himself to the one who is beyond his wildest dreams. It isn't that Job's problems were trivial. They most certainly were not trivial. But as his vision of God grows, it's as if his perspective changes And instead of his difficulties being massive and looming large. And God seeming small and weak and impotent. He begins to see something outside of himself. Someone outside of himself. That fills him with awe and wonder. And that seems to gently quieten and heal him. Just this week. I saw one of those positive memes that you see on social media. You know the kind of thing, I'm sure. It popped up on a feed. And I, I, it, it caught my eye because I think it was actually an Iranian poet who first said this. So maybe Moun Zahra might know this poet. This, this is what the meme said. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness the astonishing light Of your own being. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness the astonishing light of your own being. Now we we know the sentiment behind that, don't we? It's meant to be encouraging. But I want to suggest that God did exactly the opposite in Job's case. When Job was in darkness and lonely, God didn't direct him inwards to see the light of his own being. God lifted his gaze upwards to see the astonishing depths and light of God's being. There's a lot going on in the story of Job. But the reminder is there that when we pray, we, we must start with God. And somehow starting with praising and worshipping God will help the self-pity that so often clings to us to melt away. I I think the reason we often feel self-pity, I I feel self-pity, is because we feel we deserve better. And maybe we have a sneaky suspicion that God likes it when we're miserable. It is counterintuitive, but getting our eyes off ourselves, being lifted out of ourselves, actually... To be captivated by the sheer grace of God is the very thing that brings healing. Jesus says, When you pray, start with Our Father in heaven. Secondly, I want to suggest that the Lord's Prayer. This is something to reflect on a little more. How this prayer causes us to look up. And I've used the phrase heart eyes there deliberately because this is not just a looking up to the sky. I think I'm going to do this a lot today. <laughs> I'm not looking at the ceiling. This is spiritual vision, isn't it? This is a brightening And an enlarging of our spiritual vision, lifting our heart eyes upwards. This reminds us that God is not a figment of our human imagination or some idol that we ourselves built. And it also teaches us that God isn't the same as nature, He's not a force or a thing or an idea. God is personal, and he is above and beyond nature. In fact, all of nature is his handiwork that displays his glory. And I think it was John Calvin who said, we mustn't take the phrase to mean our Father in heaven, that somehow God lives in heaven as if heaven could contain him. Even the highest or the biggest multiple heavens couldn't contain An infinite God. This is a turn of phrase that distinguishes God from being earthbound like we are. He's above and beyond us. Transcendent in glory, one writer says. And I think there's a couple of reasons at least why this is good for us. To lift our eyes upwards is good for us. The first is Consider this with me, that it, it satisfies our deep human longing for transcendence. Many Many writers of uh, cleverer people than me have talked about how our Western culture has been dismantling faith in God for a few centuries now. The argument is that faith is superstition. The only, only the uneducated and the gullible need it we don't need religion anymore to explain things science and education have overtaken any need for god and the the assumption the the kind of air that we breathe culturally is that there is no god we have no souls and the logical conclusion is that prayer is a total waste of time it's nothing more than an emotional crutch for people who are needy and some commentators have b- very boldly predicted that religion itself will die out soon and society will move on to a glorious post-religious era of human achievement. There's a, a Christian philosopher, you, you may have heard Francis Schaeffer, uh, he's, he's d- died now, but uh, he suggested that, I, I do love this illustration, whereas humans are created by God to live in a two-story house, we're, we're all trying to kid ourselves that we live in a bungalow. We tell ourselves there's no upstairs, while secretly wishing there was. We tell ourselves there's nothing above us. But when we reduce everything to the purely physical, the material, we, we've lost any sense of mystery, transcendence, wonder, or awe. That's A-W-E, or, not A-R-O-R. Commentators talk about us now in the Western world living in what they call a disenchanted world. The world is disenchanted. And yet, isn't it the case that deep down in our hearts we do long for there to be more? We, we seek it in the adrenaline Rushes that sport or music supply. We seek it in relationships, sexual experiences. We seek it in leisure and hobbies and holidays. Some of us seek it even in nature itself. What we're yearning for is the great wow. That, that, that's what we seek. We all seek it maybe in different places. We long to look out of ourselves and see something and experience something that makes us go, wow. The high that tells us that life is more than just random chemicals. And despite the prediction that we're becoming less spiritual, people's fascination with the spiritual actually continues to spiral upwards. That isn't to say that people are going to church or experiencing formal expressions of religion, but people's desire for spirituality is certainly not declining. It seems that we do long for there to be something beyond us that gives our lives purpose meaning and draws us to wonder. And so Jesus could not be more relevant when he says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. There is an upstairs to this bungalow after all. But there's a second implication of this loss of transcendence that I think relates to identity as well. Quite by accident this week, right in the middle of my prep. So all all of this is simmering away. I I haven't written any kind of talk. It's a bit angsty, that period. (laughs) But um, I came across a great article. It was by an Australian, actually. So Tom and Claire will be pleased about that. And the article was entitled, Is it good advice to be yourself? Think about that for a minute. Is it good advice to be yourself? This is the advice of our culture that now prizes, doesn't it, very highly the idea of finding and expressing your true self, being who you really are, who you really want to be. And the, the author of this article very helpfully acknowledges that there is some good in all of that. It is desirable to live an authentic life. And it is good to be individually creative rather than us all being conformed to be clones of one another. So there's some good there. The challenge that he identifies, though, is where we're taught to look in order to find our true selves. When the transcendent is dismantled and we become disenchanted, the obvious next best place to look to discover who we are is within ourselves, isn't it? Look inside yourself. You can be whoever you want to be, is the mantra of our age. It sounds so hopeful and so optimistic, but this this author suggests that this is a weight that we don't seem able to carry with any kind of success or peace. Despite the positivity of the message... Ours is an age where the modern self is more anxious, more depressed, more fragile, more narcissistic, not less. Earlier this year, the American pop star Taylor Smith Taylor Smith? Taylor Swift. Sounds like the girl next door, doesn't it? Taylor Smith. Taylor Swift. That's a typo. I've ever thought of one. She received an honorary degree from New York University at the Yankee Stadium. She's 32 years old and she used her speech to give advice to 22-year-old young people graduating from the university. And in her speech she said this, I know it can be really overwhelming figuring, figuring out who to be and when. Who you are now And how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. (laughs) I I, I think she sums up perfectly the exhilaration and the burden of us trying to self-identify. It's up to you. Great news. Terrifying news. It's up to you. As well as looking inside of ourselves, of course, sometimes we try to look outside of ourselves, don't we, for reassurance. Technology, of course, vastly magnifies this through social media. And then we feel the pressure to live up to expectations, which only serves to make us more anxious. And we have this weird irony, don't we, of all trying to be individuals at the same time while constantly checking in on what everyone else is doing so we can look just like them. It's kind of a weird... Culture that we live in. The Lord's Prayer here, in two words, reminds us to do the one thing that we continually forget to do. To look up. Not to look within, not to look to one another, but to look up our Father in heaven. I think Jesus reminds us here that we humans are far too complex to work out for ourselves who we are simply by looking within. We're not gods. We're not infinite. We're not infallible. We do, as it happens, need outside help. And we need, don't we, to know that we're loved and known And to know where we've come from and where we're going if we're going to discover who we really are. Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. Thirdly, um, this prayer, as we've said, blends glory and intimacy. It's, it's, It's a wonderful balance, as we've said. And we've suggested already that this brings a measure of healing It expands our vision, it satisfies some of our deepest longings. But I think, thirdly, the fact that God is our Father in heaven should also stimulate our faith. This conveys both God's goodness and love alongside his power and might. And that draws out two different kinds of confidence, doesn't it? We can come to God, on the one hand, because he loves us dearly, like a father loves his children. But we can also come to God because he's so powerfully able. Our Father in heaven should stimulate our faith and trust in him. Now, this is one of the reasons that we read earlier from Isaiah forty. And this is a great chapter in the Old Testament that mingles descriptions of God's tenderness and care and his transcendent glory. And the aim of that whole passage is to draw out the confidence and trust of his believing people. Let me read to you again some of those closing words. Where Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, O Jacob? And why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. Praise God for that. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What a promise. We said earlier that the intimacy that Jesus introduces to us too was revolutionary and that's perhaps because Jewish theology majored and stressed the glorious transcendence of God. I I wonder whether our issue is the other way around, that we stress far more the fatherhood of God almost as a kind of sentimental comforting thing And we come to him casually and flippantly sometimes instead of reverently with a sense of awe and wonder and confidence because we've too easily lost sight of how great he is. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that we can trust God as our Father precisely because he is the ultimate king. Our Father in heaven. Let's try and draw these themes together finally by grasping how this opening phrase in the Lord's Prayer ultimately points us to the cross. The Lord's Prayer finally points us to the cross to win our hearts. What do I mean by that? Perhaps one of the reasons that we fear any kind of external authority is because we've been persuaded that if we surrender ourselves to something outside of ourselves, we'll only end up being exploited or oppressed. Look after number one, right? But what if there was a pure, unselfish love that instead of limiting and restricting us, would actually rescue and restore us? What if there was a love and a glory that could truly captivate and win our hearts? Our Father is all about love, isn't it? And it kind of shows how low God comes to meet us where we are but the words in heaven, though, are all about glory. And they remind us of how high God is compared to us. And here's the thing. I, I don't think we'll ever fully appreciate how great the fatherly love of God is until we see how high his heavenly love Holiness and otherness is. And I think that works the other way around as well. I'm not sure we'll ever fully, truly appreciate his heavenly glory either if we don't grasp how deep his love is for us. The American author and pastor Tim Keller has helpfully described this to be almost like a pendulum. You get that idea. I was trying to think how to illustrate this. I'll just do it with my arms. <laughs> That's easy, isn't it? Um, you You kind of have to swing far out this way for the pendulum to come far back this way. and if if you're stuck in the middle and not moving at all, you're not going to appreciate appreciate either the love or the glory there's There's something here. That is, if you don't get the one, you won't fully get the other. And if you don't get this, you won't fully get this. You get that idea? It's a simple but brilliant illustration. To illustrate it, Keller tells a story of how he had a conversation with a person. And this person was not untypical. They, they could not accept the Bible's teaching on sin or, or hell. And this person that Keller was talking to wholeheartedly believed that God was a God of love but felt that any talk of God's judgment was misplaced and just plain wrong. So I think their pendulum was like stuck up here somewhere not moving at all. You get that idea. So Keller asked this person, do you believe that God loves and forgives you And this person was like, sure, God's a God of love. And so Keller followed up by asking, what do you think this forgiveness cost him? And the person thought for a minute and then said, well, nothing. You see the problem? If if we don't have a high view of God's glory, and purity and goodness and beauty and holiness, in short, his in-heavenness, if that's even a word, which isn't, we'll never appreciate how far we fall short. And therefore, how serious God's diagnosis of us must inevitably be. And that means that we'll also fail to grasp. How utterly mind-blowing the love that is required to rescue us from such an awful fate really is. How can a God who is in heaven become our Father? And the place where such high glory and such near love meet is at the cross. Do you know that one of the only places in the Gospels where Jesus does not address God as his Father is on the cross? I think it actually might be the only time. I didn't count them all. Maybe we can talk about that afterwards. As Jesus took human sin on his shoulders, he cried out in agony My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason that we can call God our Father rather than face him as our judge is because of Jesus. This prayer, which so beautifully combines revolutionary intimacy and awe-inspiring glory is only possible because Jesus gave up both intimacy and glory to win both for us. And this is why prayer can never be a bargain between us and God. It is a gift of his sheer grace. John Calvin said that to call God Father is to pray in Jesus' name. And he said this, with what confidence would anyone address God as father? Who would break forth into such rashness to claim for himself the honor of a son of God? Unless we had been adopted as children of grace in Christ. True prayer is only possible because of God's kindness and grace shown to us in jesus at the cross and you have to see the glory in order to fully appreciate the love and the more you see the love the more you'll know the glory see how the lord's prayer draws us invites us to adore and delight in such a father I was wondering how to close, and I was like, what can I tell these people to do with this? (laughs) This this is so amazing, isn't it? I'm going to suggest this. This is really simple. As we go through this series over these summer months, okay, why not resolve right now to spend five minutes, just five minutes every day coming to God and using these four words? Jesus provides them, our Father in heaven. Decide to do it now for the next 30 days, five minutes a day, and see what it does for your heart. We're going to sing. We're going to sing about the cross, as we've talked about the cross. As we do so, let's bow as our musicians come, and we're going to pray. Before we sing, our Father in heaven, we've gathered here as your people to to adore and praise you. And we thank you that we can call you with confidence our Father in heaven. Would you help us to be less preoccupied with ourselves and more delighted in you? Increase our vision of you and fill us with a sense of your great glory. We are so earthbound and we pray that you would enable us to look up. May your beauty and holiness captivate us. And would you help us over these summer weeks, not just to enjoy the sunshine, but to be refreshed and warmed and aware in a deeper way and able to relax into your great love and your great glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.